0: So, I think we can come to an agreement that the best movie that year was, uh... Oh, fuck. I was going to make a joke.
1: Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter?
0: Yeah, that's what I was looking for. (laughs)
1: Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are still in quarantine in, well, I almost said Los Angeles, in San Diego. Is that offensive to San Diegans to confuse you with Los Angeles? Yeah. Los (laughs) Angeles sucks. Uh, The only reason people go to
0: Los Angeles is because fucking a hundred years ago, people were like... That should be a place to go. Uh-huh. And then that just kind of stuck, but it's kind of a fucking seeping wound. Uh, <laughs> they're terrible with COVID right now. Sure. It's hotter than most other parts of California. Not enough of it has access to the beach. The traffic sucks, and there's too many goddamn people. Yeah, it's offensive. <laughs> san diegans we like to relax we like to kick it with our covid easy before we get too far into Mm -hmm. me shitting on los angeles because we could do a whole podcast about how much los angeles sucks (laughs) uh, i'll introduce you as cassidy robinson uh the the host of this show uh broadcasting from an undisclosed location in the rocky mountains
1: I lived in L.A. for a handful of years, and in Orange yeah. County before that. So even though I mostly agree with your criticisms, I still have a little bit of affinity for certain parts of it.
0: Fuck you! You only like it because that, the, because they get every movie release ever. Yeah, That's like that, the only reason
1: you like it. That is a reason, and and uh, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of culture uh, I like. You know, Pasadena is beautiful. Fucking culture. Um, Vegan hipsters complaining about
0: Silver Lake isn't culture.
1: I've never been to Silver Lake. I did go to Echo Park, which is basically the same thing. That's where a lot of the rock clubs were, so I saw a lot of concerts up there. Um, But uh, I, I was not a Silver Lake hipster. I was a West L.A. guy, even though I couldn't afford to be a West L.A. guy. So I hardly ever saw anything north of Hollywood. But anyway... Before this turns into the Californians. Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) But wait, how did you get to West LA? Did you take the five? Uh, I know you don't want to take the 101.
1: I lived right next to Venice Boulevard, which takes you all the way through the entire city. You can stay on Venice forever. You don't even have to get on the freeway. You probably shouldn't. I don't advise it for most times of the day. Today, we're going to be discussing the movie Eurovision, the story of... What's the name of their band?
0: The (laughs) title of the movie is Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga.
1: Yeah, kind of a mouthful. And then for our streaming homework, uh, an older film, a slightly older film, we'll be talking about uh, Gerald's Game. Both of these films are free to stream on Netflix if you are a subscriber. I was looking at stuff on Twitter just to kind of open the podcast with something fun. And there is a Twitter account called the lost Oscar it just talks about uh, the years where certain films lost the best picture and it has here a poll for uh, 2012 I just wanted to weigh in on this what do you th- what you or I might have thought about this year do you remember 2012 generally speaking the year yeah
0: well I'm well hold on I'm confused what what is this <laughs> what are we doing what is this bit I'm not prepped for this show by the way I'm barely
1: prepped this happened 15 minutes ago I look at Twitter there's a a Twitter account called the lost oscar I'm going to be there there's a poll for it says which is your favorite best okay. picture loser from that year but I'm asking oh, you fuck. in general not necessarily a film year but in general the year 2012 because that was the year I think both of us graduated. From yeah, that college. was the year
0: you, me, and Richard graduated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that uh, um, for longtime listeners, Richard, the former co-host of the podcast back when it was the Jabber and the Drone, we yes. all graduated uh, in 2012 from mm-hmm. college with our undergraduates degrees.
1: Yeah, even though um, we were in school for nearly a decade.
0: No, I was in school for five years.
1: Mm, I was in school for. I thought I was in school for seven. I took two gap years. Two gap years. I think you only took. I thought you only took one.
0: Took. I took two years off between high school and college. I wish I'd only taken one. um, Oh, okay. Because I would have graduated in twenty if I had not taken two gap years and like figured out what I wanted to do a little quicker and kind of busted my ass. I could have graduated in four years. No, it took me five years. I went back to school in 2008.
1: Yeah. 2008, 2007. If it was five years, whatever, we're not, we didn't go for math. (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> neither Obviously. of us uh, So uh, I'll read off these uh, these Best Picture nominees um, This was the year, I had to look it up Because they didn't include it in the poll for obvious reasons But um, this was the year Argo won Best Picture I remember our Oscar oh, party Okay. Um, but uh, these are the other films That were nominated that year uh, Amour My Michael Haneke Beasts of the Southern Wild Django Unchained uh, Les Mis, Life of Pi, Lincoln, oh, Silver Linings Playbook, and Zero Dark Thirty. So kind
0: of a fucking rough year for Best Picture.
1: It's just a very, it's just very varied. There's there's decent movies in here. I can think of at least four that still hold up. Um, it's just a lot of stuff and a lot of like. A lot of middle of the road sort of Oscar crabby stuff, but um, yeah, I think uh, it's yeah, it's kind of all over the
0: place, and I yeah. don't know. A lot of those movies, I'm like, mm, that was a good movie, but did it deserve to be the best picture that year? I don't know. Like, yeah, it's I mean, I, playbook sure. I I liked, but I don't, I don't know.
1: There were a lot of movies. I I think if I were to go back and look at like my. You know, my favorite films from that year. Yeah,
0: like Your Pool.
1: Yeah. um, One of them, I think actually what I called my favorite film of 2012, which I don't know if I still agree with that now, but um, is on this list. Um, But I know that there were other movies that came out this year that I was more excited by. Um, And there are some films on this list that I downright hate. Um, Mostly Les Mis I thought yeah, that you, was
0: you've never left that chore. One go
1: mm-hmm. and I was kind of whatever about Life of Pi. I thought it was like pretty, but I didn't get a ton out of it, especially given that that was like such a talked about, passed around book for so many years before that point. And then I saw the movie, and I was like, eh, I guess. Yeah. No. There. That, uh, yeah. That's kind of how I felt. Like,
0: I think it. I enjoyed it enough when I saw it, mm-hmm. but I've never had an urge to watch it again. And I, I just don't care. Like, I mean, get it. He's the, he's the tiger.
1: Right. Right. If you wanted to see Castaway as done by Lisa Frank, then that's, that's the movie yeah, for you. I mean,
0: visually it's, it is really good, but, um, no, man, I'm looking at the movies from 2012 and it was a rough year. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> you're looking at other releases.
0: Yeah, I'm just kind of looking at everything that came out that year. Yeah. Um I didn't know that Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter came out the same year as Abe Lincoln. That's pretty hilarious.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh other movies that came out that year were fucking John Carter of Mars, Not which I great. didn't hate, yeah. but uh uh Battleship, Dark Shadows, the total recall reboot, Wrath of the Titans. Mm-hmm uh the red dawn reboot mm-hmm. uh the first hobbit which is okay yeah. um project
1: x oh that uh, i think that might have been my official least favorite movie that year
0: twilight uh breaking dawn part 2 like it was kind of a rough year mm-hmm. uh,
1: i want to say even for like
0: tentpole movies you know prometheus which sucked uh
1: cloud atlas which i want to rewatch um, yeah, Cloud Atlas was an interesting movie. I think I underrated that that year. I think at the time I was I was way too hung up on like structure, and I it because it's sort of a messy movie. It doesn't totally work, but I, I now thinking back on it, I think it's like so interesting, especially yeah. given that both of the Wachowskis have now come out as transgender, and that movie is like playing around with that a lot. Um,
0: totally, yeah. I think. um I think it bears. I don't know. Maybe we should do a rewatch of that. A, a revisit at yeah. some point.
1: Uh, but uh, of okay, the actual so, nominees, which would you give best picture? Would you stick with Argo? I, I, I guess I'd allow you to do that.
0: Um, no. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, it was fine. I, <laughs> I, Argo is a perfectly acceptable movie. I'm, I'm not like mad about it yeah i feel the same about argo as i felt feel about lincoln or Mm -hmm. even silver lightning's playbook like they're good movies but i don't i don't know that any of them was what i would consider best picture i honestly don't know any of these that i would pick uh i think maybe my favorite movie that came out that year was probably skyfall uh, or The Avengers, yeah. um, but neither of the those were nominated. No. I guess of the ones nominated, my personal favorite was Django Unchained.
1: See, and that's what ended up winning the poll um, in this, this little Twitter poll, which didn't have a ton of votes, but enough. Um, I think I've said this on the podcast many times. It's so my least favorite Tarantino film, like by a, a ways. And people... So- I, it's weird that that movie like has a certain kind of affinity like I think it hit on just like a generational thing that that was a lot of people's first Tarantino film or something. May, yeah, maybe. We, it, it,
0: I think it was kind of the transition to new sort of new Tarantino. Um so Well, I would say you.
1: that that I would say that would be Kill Bill for me, but um I think there's a pretty clear dividing what? line between Kill Bill on and anything before I, I that, I think
0: there's, I think there's sort of three phases of uh, Tarantino. I, I, think there's his, you know, his early stuff, his crime stuff. huh. Then there's his, his, uh, more genre stuff. Uh, so Kill Bill, uh, and Glorious Bastards, and I would even include, I would say Django is maybe the last one of that. Mm. And then there's his sort of modern period. Where I think he's like uh, purposely a little more experimental with himself, um, with like the Hateful Eight and
1: Once Upon a Time in fucking, Hollywood.
0: Yeah, so yeah. I, I think I think there's kind of three periods of Tarantino. Okay. But let me let me tell you my experience with Django Unchained when I saw it in theaters because this is probably my le- like my worst movie going experience of all time. So there had just been the shooting in Aurora uh, for Dark Knight Rises. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, I was kind of nervous to go to the movies at that point. Like, I just, I don't know. It, you know, it's once something like that happens, then, well, shit, all of a sudden movie theaters are no longer like safe spaces. Right. Now that's something I have to think about every time I go to the movies. We is, weren't you know,
1: totally numb to it yet
0: might've been the first movie I'd seen after that. And I remember, so there were people talking really loud, like in front of me. And I was like, kind of nervous to shush them and Mm -hmm. and stuff. Um, But there was this, this guy who he was like seated with some people near the front of the theater. I'm feeling discomfort. And there's this guy near the front and I can't really see him. Um, I just see he keeps, like, standing up and, like, hanging out near the entrance to the, the theater. Like, the to the, the theater we were in. And he, like, kind of walks in and out. And I, he was probably high, but I didn't know. I, I was, like, scared to death. I, I was just expecting him to, like, wander out and wander back in with a gun at any minute. I... I it, like. I was spent way more time watching this guy than I did the actual movie. Yeah. Um, so I always kind of had this weird negative association to Django, um, like just because the experience was so tense and stressful, and like,
1: Unpleasant. like I couldn't even yeah. just
0: like watch the movie and enjoy it. So uh, I actually <laughs> recently rewatched it for the first time, uh, and I totally dug it. I was I was super into it so all right well i i've come around to to Django unchained and i i am certain that most of my problem with it was that negative association
1: right i just i mean for lots of reasons it's just not my favorite um i think it's kind of long i think it's uh jamie fox is kind of a boring character compared to everybody else in the movie i it's not my favorite christoph waltz like Tarantino thing like I don't know there was just a lot of stuff in that movie I thought was sort of not great but I mean I still like it enough it, uh, and you know Tarantino's worst film is better than most people's best films but um yeah I I that year had *Beast of the Southern Wild as my favorite movie of that year anyway regardless of Oscars so I guess that's what I would still give it to uh, but uh, but it, now that I'm looking at the list I think in retrospect i prefer zero dark 30 as a movie watching experience
0: interesting that that movie didn't really do anything for me maybe again maybe i should rewatch it um i just i remember watching it and i was like yeah okay like i felt kind of the same about that as i did like the hurt locker like i'm, I'm not that into war movies or like modern war movies
1: well i don't know if i'd call it a war movie i mean it takes place in a war setting i suppose but i think it's more of like a detective film just happens to take place in you know during the time of like the end of the iraq war but i i just really love the filmmaking and the acting in that movie um and i think it's a really really tense thriller um but i also really like the hurt locker so anyway that's that Uh, let's go ahead and get into the movie news. Um, we're going to be going back a few weeks here, but there's some interesting stories to talk about. And I think you'll appreciate the first one here because they're giving it to Gosling, Keith. Ryan Gosling gears up at Universal for a Wolfman reboot. Woo! What? What? You didn't know this? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I kid you not. Are you fucking kidding me right now?
0: This is the first I've heard this. <laughs> this is incredible news. Um, this the, calls for celebration. They're still looking what for the a director. Fuck? They're still looking for a director. Were we not literally just talking about fucking werewolf movies? We might have been. I, I feel like just barely a couple weeks ago or something, we were talking about how there hasn't been a good werewolf movie in a long time. And if anybody's going to give it to us, it's going to be the goss.
1: <laughs> well, with his fucking Brooklyn werewolf accent, Canadian as filtered <laughs> through Brooklyn. Yes. Um, as you know, uh, one of the last films we saw in a theater setting was the invisible man, which brought this new kind of cool, dark yeah, Hitchcock, Hitchcocky cool. noirish, vibe um, to the uh, universal thing and I think that is the direction these kind of like cleaner standalones hopefully um, that they are planning to keep going um, with these universal reboots and of course Benicio del Toro made a Wolfman movie a handful of years back it wasn't very good it wasn't like the worst it was it was kind of fine it's but fine. it was sort of more um, post underworld post Van Helsing. Yeah, it,
0: it was a little, like, too new metal for the <laughs> gothic look that they were sort of selling it as.
1: Yeah, it kind of goes into, like, dumb... Uh, it's not subtle. ...action movie mode toward the end. But if they want to, like, do, like, you know, Drive with the Werewolf, I'm down with that. I am
0: so down with this. I, I think that was the episode where we were, t- we were talking about, like, the, the Universal Monster reboots and stuff, mm-hmm. and yeah. I knew you were going to be happy
1: with that. Pumped. Um, this was sort of like a little. This is more sort of just in the rumor mill, but um, there's been whispers of Kevin Bacon, uh, to star in a another, I guess, another reboot of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street as Freddy Krueger.
0: Yeah. So. I so this might not even be the case start. anymore but no no so how that started was um uh I I forget who was doing the interview I think it was um yeah I I don't remember who was I think it was uh uh the actor who played Freddy Krueger um Robert England Yeah Robert England I think he he did an interview or something at a convention or something and he was talking about how he said that he might have one or two more Freddy movies in him if if people move fast, yeah. basically. Um, and, you know, he would obviously love to play Freddy again. Um, but, you know, in the interview he says, but I can't play Freddy Krueger forever. And so he mentions, like, if anyone was to replace me, I could see Kevin Bacon doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I think I think that's how this all got started and it just like gained traction as you know as weird internet stories do that it got translated from Robert England talks about how he would like Kevin Bacon to replace him to could Kevin Bacon play Freddy Krueger uh, so I wouldn't put a lot of weight behind this I don't think it's like a real story yeah Um more of like a, a a speculation, but I guess sure. I don't, I don't know. hate the I idea. Mean, yeah, I don't either. But I, and I think, I think it would be cool to get some other takes on, on Freddy Krueger. Like I love, uh, I love Robert England's Freddy, obviously. But you know, and I I never saw um the the reboot
1: Jackie, but I, I liked. Here's
0: yeah, one. I like the idea of Jackie Earl Haley as, as Freddy Krueger. And, and if it's like, yeah, I feel like that character can sort of transcend one actor because he's based off your nightmares. And, right. and so I think different actors could approach that in different ways. It could be cool. Like, uh, we could even get like a, a cool, okay, here's my idea. Uh, free pitch right now. Coming out with it, just off the top of my head, we do like a, a vin, uh, vignette of Freddy's stories, mm-hmm. and Freddy's played by a different actor in each one, kind of like the Bob Dylan movie. Oh,
1: I thought you're. I going to say like the the Doctor Parnassus, the Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus, where no, they had no, to, like, like quickly not, replace Heath Ledger because he died halfway filming, so they just filled in with like three other actors. Um, yeah, and I thought that uh
0: worked for what that movie yeah, was. Sure. But I I think yeah, I think doing something like that where we, you know, let's play with the identity of Freddy Krueger and maybe that could give us a fresh take on on a character that, you know, I mean, where else do you go with a character like that? He's mm-hmm. he's come into the real world. Uh he's fought Jason Voorhees. Like, you know, he's been rebooted like if we're going to do that, let's try a new take on it, but mm-hmm. I don't see any reason why Kevin Bacon couldn't be him.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if you're if you're just looking for one actor to kind of hold down the character, he fits the bill in a lot of ways, and I would normally not say that we should replace him with such a well-known actor, because I think one of the things that made Robert England work so well is he was just sort of a character actor before that point, so mm. people didn't have a lot of associations with him. Now his main association is Freddy Cougar. um but yeah uh, you know I think that allowed the the character to kind of become so iconic whereas I don't know if people would just be looking through the makeup at Kevin Bacon just looking at Footloose the whole time and I, I don't think they would I think Kevin Bacon is kind of chameleonic in a, in his own way and I think he has really and- interesting. Actorly instincts, um, and, and he's also played career... a lot of dirtbags and and sickos. Yeah, yeah he can play a good villain, and, and he can be funny. Uh, and I think you have to kind of be funny. That was the main problem with the Jackie Earl Haley take. It was, it was it was a very like sincere, <laughs> dark Freddy, um, yeah. and it just ended up being boring and drab.
0: Yeah, I, no, I, I agree with you, especially in the sense of humor Yeah, uh, of Kevin Bacon. And again, he can play, he can go real dark. Um, he's, you know, he's got some horror movie cred. Mm-hmm. And I think his career has kind of cooled to the point where it wouldn't, I don't think it'd be too distracting to see him as Freddy, because it's not like you're getting... Uh, like a Benedict Cumberbatch or uh, Chris Evans, Freddy Krueger, you know what I mean? Like right. <laughs> he, he, I wouldn't say he's like the top of people's, uh, you know, casting calls right now.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if he's on the top, but he's definitely not at the bottom either. He's,
0: no, he, I, I don't think he's like, he's still, he's still so yeah yeah, he's still a viable actor, but I just don't think, like, he's not the name he used, he's not the draw he used to be.
1: No, I, guess, I would say case. that he's kind of in that Gary Oldman land where if you need somebody well-known-ish who can just hold it down and you know they're going to bring it, you get Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you need somebody of a certain age. All right. Fletch reboot, a modern day reboot, the Sol just reboots because this is the world we live in now, um, is uh-huh. in talks with John Hamm to star. Okay. Uh- so, John Hamm from Mad Men, most people know him from, he's this comedy obsessive. Like, if you've been following his career outside of the world of Mad Men, where he played a very serious part, um, you know that he hangs out with comedians. He really, really wants to be in comedy. He he's kind of kind of in the world of comedy by osmosis because he's yeah. so friendly with the world of comedy um i guess he had a, he had a fairly cameos. big cameo in like 30 rock and stuff like that too so he had a
0: uh, a really substantial one in uh uh the unbreakable kimmy
1: schmidt mm-hmm. like he's
0: uh, he was in bridesmaids like he's got a decent comedy pedigree
1: yeah but he's never been cast to carry a comedy as a lead. Okay, so, I, I of course, wasn't
0: that. We're a little bit stoked. older than
1: maybe a lot of people who would be listening to us. So Fletch was a like a, a goofy. Yeah. Um, it was kind of like Ace Ventura of its time with uh, Chevy Chase in the eighties.
0: So I don't know a lot about the Fletch franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I was that sort of goofball comedy that. Yeah. Was just sort of outside my orbit. Um, And I watched a lot of like those old classic like 70s and 80s comedies. It just for some reason never caught the Fletch movies. Mm -hmm. Um, So Chevy Chase played Fletch originally.
1: Yeah. It was a Chevy Chase vehicle. Uh,
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Chevy Chase as a comedian was sort of known for being uh, handsome and charming and usually pretty dry. Yeah, um,
1: very sarcastic. He's not
0: like yeah, he's not like a character comedian and I honestly think John Hamm could nail that. I I was like ready to write the story off until you mentioned John Hamm and then I was like, "Oh yeah, he would be perfect for that."
1: Yeah, it's yeah, I I, I don't think it's the worst idea. I do think it would be it would be the ultimate test of John Hamm's comedic presence on film. I actually because love I, th- I think Hamm he can be funny, but I'm not sure if he's only funny in small doses. Or if I don't know if he I haven't seen him be th- funny for a sustained amount of time and be able to carry a whole story.
0: I think uh he again, he has a pretty substantial part in The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. He's like he plays the reverend, the the cult guy who was holding them in the underground bunker. Right. Yeah. Um so it uh, in most of it he has cameos but they did just do like a choose your own adventure movie and he's like the main uh the main antagonist and that's a lot of fun by the way I've never done a choose your own adventure movie on Netflix before and it's a blast okay um but I think he's got the chops I th- I think it works because John Hamm is such a good fucking actor and it helps to be a good actor Like I, I think he, he has a uh, An inherent understanding Of timing mm-hmm. And I think he could totally do it I am a little surprised He hasn't been a comedic lead Before
1: Yeah it Maybe he like, just wasn't I finding that, the right project Or whatever or He just wasn't getting those kind of pitches
0: Yeah like I think he would have uh, Maybe been better than uh, Jude Law in Spy like, I think he he could definitely nail a role like that. Yeah. So I don't see why he couldn't nail a role where he's the lead. Like, he had seven, what, seven seasons uh, as one of the best dramatic characters on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think he can carry some, you know, like, I think he can carry the load.
1: Okay. Yeah, I, I don't. I would be willing to, to see what happens there. Um my only fear is this would end up like the Russell Brand Arthur remake, where the character is so intertwined with the original actor that it would that it's just a mistake from the beginning.
0: Yeah, and and I do kind of see that or, or even like um the Steve Martin Pink Panthers. I didn't see those, but
1: they have their in fans. general
0: when it's a character that's like sort of synonymous with the creator, yeah. Um, you know, like I wouldn't want to see somebody else do Borat in 50 years, right? So, yes, that aspect of it makes me a little hesitant when it's like, okay, couldn't we just write a Fletch movie and and call it call something, it something else yeah. and a not have it like be Fletch
1: movie, yeah? Because it's like
0: that's not a franchise that's going to be money in the bank. Right, so,
1: yeah, that's what, I mean, why I literally just, had to describe what Fletch is, because I'm pretty sure nobody under the under the age of 35 knows what it is.
0: I, I mean, I barely know what it is. Yeah. yeah, so it's like, why rest the box office on a franchise nobody recognizes when, yeah. you know, maybe it might be important to have a really good, funny fucking script?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I anyway. mean, of course, that's... That's key, and then it, you know everything else from there. Okay, last story, and I shared this with you yesterday in our group text. Uh, Usagi Jimbo animated series comes to Netflix through producer James Wan of the Conjuring franchise. Um, oh,
0: interesting! I didn't know James Wan was producing it.
1: I'm down. Oh, I'm I am so down with down. the clown.
0: I think it is beyond time that Usagi Yojimbo gets the fucking respect it deserves. Now, describe
1: uh, for the people who don't read comics or are too old for the Ninja Turtles cartoon. What had is Usagi Yojimbo?
0: Cameo episode. So, Usagi <laughs> Yojimbo is a uh, he is a samurai rabbit. He is a ronin who wanders feudal Japan and it just happens to be I mean it's it's, it's stories. It's <laughs> yeah. It's just that all of the it literally is Yojimbo. Uh it's just he's a rabbit. Yeah. And it, it's set in like an anthropomorphic universe. And here's the thing, I love like genre anthropomorphized cartoons, uh or like comic books. Like specifically uh, like animals
1: this, being humans. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like there's this other really good one, um, a, another really good comic called Black Sad, and it's like a noir, and well, it's, cat. he's a cat. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and then you're um, into Mouse so Guard like, and all of that stuff. So what Keith is trying uh-huh. to say is he's still searching for his persona. <laughs> uh,
0: I just that's in my meal. You, I, I, I don't know what it is about it, but like, I yeah, I don't know. Um, anyway, I the Usagi Yojimbo comics have been around for fucking ever. Um, yeah, since like the late seventies, early eighties, like they've been. They were created. Long, long it
1: was time. created around the same time as Ninja Turtles, right? As a
0: comic. Yeah, I I think it might have even been before. Um, so it and it was one of the first big like indie comics.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, uh, and you know, I think the crossover with uh, they did a crossover episode with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which um, is how we
1: ended up I with a the toy.
0: Yep, I think we they crossed over a couple times in, in comics as well. And, you know, I think that was a huge signal boost for Yusagi Yojimbo. But I just, I think there's so much, I mean, they've been, I think Stan Sakai still writes it. And he's at Comic-Con every year, um, you know, signing autographs, doing sketches and stuff. Like, he's still doing the hustle. I think he still uh, draws it. So I I just think, like, it is it is about time that, like, it's surprising to me that this property has not been mined yet. Right. Uh, you know, after X-Men, all the comic book properties in the world were bought up and adapted and stuff. And, uh, you know, I just think it is, an in, in animated cartoon is great. The fact that it's on Netflix is going to be great because... Uh, that means, you know, they, they tend to put a lot of time and quality in their original series. And it also means it can be kind of adult. Like, they don't have to worry about it being, you know, air quotes, for kids. Right. Uh, not not that Yusagi Yojimbo is crazy. It's, it you know, but it gets pretty violent. Like, it's a samurai story. It's, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's a pretty good, like, young adult story. But, uh, you know, it's... I don't think it's going to be like a kids cartoon and I am all for more adult animation. Maybe just a um, hair
1: more sophisticated than like Samurai Jack. Yeah, yeah. I honestly even if it was sort of the same level as Samurai Jack, like Yeah, which was a uh, Gindy a great show. Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh Gindy 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 Tartakovsky. Sure. Um he he's pretty fucking legit In and, and uh, yeah, Samurai Jack, I think, was pretty um, boundary-pushing. Like, if it could have the tone, like you mentioned, of Samurai Jack or or kind of a Tartakovsky joint, mm. I think it would be really cool. So, yeah. I'm very excited for this.
1: Clearly. All right, uh, let's get on with the main review of the week, which is Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga, and I will describe that. Uh, so
0: I think you need to to say the title with a bad uh, Norwegian I- Icelandic
1: Icelandic accent. Um, yeah, I I I can't. I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Eurovision Song Contest: The Story of Fire, Fire Saga is a new comedy starring Will Ferrell. And uh, it's directed by Dave Dobkin, actually, David Dobkin, which we were talking about a couple weeks back when we read that list, uh, Alex's list of bad directors who made a couple good movies. He was on that list. Oh, was he? Yeah, he made, made, uh, not Bridesmaid, uh, Wedding Crashers, Um, among other Uh. films. He's done a lot of comedies. Um, But in this film, so I feel like I have to sort of describe for Americans what the Eurovision Song Contest is. This is like one of those things like soccer that everybody in the world cares about except for Americans. Mm -hmm. Um, So the Eurovision Song Contest is an annual performance contest in which countries from both northern and western and eastern uh, Europe um, submit their best artists or whoever wins their regional competitions Um, to compete on the worldwide stage um, against each other. And I I think the thing that America would probably have the most connection to this is, is that's why we know who ABBA is. ABBA won one of these years and years ago for the song Waterloo, and that kind of kickstarted their career. However, it's been going ever since then, so well since the 70s, and as years have gone by, it's gotten more and more... Kind of uh, garish and campy and big and costume changes and stage shows and pyrotechnics and lighting. And it's become sort of a circus thing <laughs> in the last few years. I think, think like the masked singer meets Euro techno pop also
0: on like a huge scale on a huge like, scale it, it, like all of europe is invested in
1: yes this. and then all of the countries get to um vote on it so there's sort of like an olympics element to it as well uh and then every year they pick one singer i know a few years ago john um oliver did a segment about it in which one of the of the first like transgendered or openly transgendered um uh, artists won the contest and she had like a beard and everything. And it was a whole thing who actually what? is, does a cameo in this film.
0: Okay. Yeah. I, I thought I, yeah. Um, apparently there's a lot of, uh, like former contestants and stuff who have cameos. So
1: I, yes, there's a I big, know. there's a big musical sequence in the film, which, um, they bring on a lot of former contestants and winners, uh, uh, to do to, to, do one of the larger set pieces in the film. So basically the story is Will Farrell and uh, Rachel McAdams are best friends living in Iceland. They have dreams of one day making it to the Eurovision Song Contest. They've been practicing in their garage for years. Um, there's kind of a lot of uh, Zoolander happening in this film. But um, uh, Will Farrell, who plays Lars, his father, played by Pierce Brosnan, is uh, sort of a disgruntled Icelandic fishermen and they live in sort of a blue-collar fisherman town, so nobody really takes them seriously and they're not particularly great at what they do anyway. They play a lot of like bars and birthday parties and such. But, through circumstances, they are able to make it to the Eurovision Song Contest. First, they uh, sort of... <laughs> by default, win uh, their uh, Icelandic um, competition and they're sent to Edinburgh, uh, Scotland, to compete against the world stage. At which point, there's a lot of, like, fracturing that happens in the group and, like, inner turmoil and there's, like, a will-they-won't-they romance between the two, Lars and, and uh, Sigrid, played by uh, Rachel McAdams. Um, and uh, they meet a lot of, like, Competitors from other countries. Um, Dan Stevens plays a Russian in this uh, who's trying to sort of break them apart and 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 take Rachel McAdams' character for for himself. Um, and yeah, it's it's a little bit of like Zoolander meets a sports movie with the whole like Euro pop background. Mm-hmm. So what did you think?
0: Um,
1: so I hadn't
0: ever heard of Eurovision before this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I. I kind of have two minds about this movie. I don't want to say I hated it, because I didn't entirely hate it. Right. Um I I really enjoy all of the stuff you just described. I really enjoyed uh the the, the setting of this. Right. I enjoyed the the uh I sort of enjoyed everything about this except the two main characters. Um yeah. who were just so nothing and have no chemistry and are so paint by numbers and like and I was bummed out when even their songs weren't funny because I was like I I was expecting more of like maybe a little bit closer to pop star with like some musical parody and I think they kind of go for that a little but I I don't Maybe it just didn't translate. There is,
1: a, I would um, say, not necessarily for their characters, but in the background, like the Dan Stevens character, who, for my money, steals the whole movie. Yes. Um.
0: Yeah. He, well, so I Dan Stevens is great. I I like everything about this movie. Yeah. I realize, Pierce Brosnan except, is great as
1: what he's in what he's asked to do here.
0: Yeah, I just think that that it. I think that either Will Farrell was miscast. Uh, or I don't know. Uh, just like the humor of it didn't land for the most part for me. Uh, there, I think there are a couple really good bits, mm-hmm. um, but they don't really play out till later in the movie.
1: It's it, incredibly just, front-loaded. Like there's yeah. there's something going on here where because there's a moment where they get past the regionals and they make it to the main Eurovision and I like check the clock thinking there'd be 15, 20 minutes left and there was still a whole ass hour left. And <laughs> yeah. I was like, whoa, why are why are we spending this much time setting this up?
0: Totally. And, and I think that is sort of this Problems movie is and maybe it just is because it doesn't, you know, this is a movie for American audiences so they have to set up what Eurovision is, plus they have to set up the these characters and, and it's just Yeah. I, I feel like that is where the movie falls flat is like is trying to if it didn't have to have this like romantic subplot and everything. Which is totally on that could have Yeah. Yeah. And it could have freed up some, you know, like some time economy to actually put some jokes in, especially at the front. Like it's pretty unfunny for a while. Yeah. Uh, and, and the first little bit, the humor is, like, kind of painful, actually. It, it, like, there's some stuff that I'm like, is that, was that supposed to be a joke? Like, I genuinely didn't know if they were, if they were parodying this, if they were trying to be sincere with their interpretation of, like, Icelandic culture or if they were making fun of it, and I think like the elves thing, yeah, and I think that's the problem is they're kind of trying to settle. into... I, I loved the elves thing uh, at the end, <laughs> like uh, that joke pays off, but right. it takes for fucking ever. Right. But I think the payoff is totally worth it. That was actually probably my favorite part of the movie. Um, was that little sequence? Yeah, uh, yeah, but. Yeah. but I, I it, it just doesn't work when you're also trying to make us give a shit about these characters. Like, well, I love the world of this movie. Yes. So let's just have fun with the world of this movie. And, and I not think eventually try...
1: we get there. I think the second half of the movie yeah. is much better than the first half, largely because of Dan Stevens. And um, who's the actress uh, who's also in there who kind of plays the the sort of other instigator that's trying to break them up? Uh,
0: mm, oh man, I'm probably going to butcher her name, but Melissa. Melisanthi Mahut plays uh, Mita. Yes. And, yeah, she's she's really good. They're really Um, fun
1: and vampy and ridiculous, and I think they are the tone the movie's going for. They are the much more interesting characters. (laughs) And I kind of wish the movie had been about them.
0: Like, I think it would have been better, instead of it having be this, like, sort of underdog story, Mm -hmm. I think it would have been better to have it be sort of like a let's – you know, because I couldn't tell if they were making fun of Eurovision or if they were trying to be sincere. And I think,
1: think it's a little bit of both. The, I think they're trying to have their cake and eat it, too, because I think they and do. And I think that's the problem. I think they're they trying do, to toe this line. I think they do sort of love this world. And I think that because it's shot, like, pretty much on the actual stage and everything. Graham Norton, who hosts it, is has a cameo in the film. So I think there is sort of a love and admiration for for the Eurovision Song can, Contest, but I think they do. They that recognize, and still make fun of it. Yeah, they recognize that it is a ridiculous thing, and that it has become such a spectacle. And it's it's kind of like I guess if anyone can like modern day Americans, if there's any sort of analog to that, it's a little bit like like sort of like the K-pop world is like it's so big and grandiose and ridiculous, but also sort of impressive just on a performance level. So yeah. and I think the movie does find that balance eventually, but it just takes yes. way too long to get there. And I agree with you. Well, I think and- I think Will Ferrell is sleepwalking through this movie, and he's usually yeah. reliably funny. You, you can usually have well, Will Ferrell and I, I do think- just about anything, and it's funny.
0: And but- I think well, I think part of the problem is is not only are we setting up this world of Eurovision, mm-hmm. not only are we trying to set up this romance. But we're also, uh, uh, not only are we trying to set up this this thing with Dan Stevens, but we're also trying to set up this like underdog story that I don't think the movie needed. I think it would have been better if if we just saw the competition, like if it just been.
1: Why did they have to be initially bad at it or whatever? Like yeah, like why couldn't because also that doesn't really play because they aren't bad. No, they're really fucking good. They're not, uh, specifically, Will Ferrell is not like good enough to really do that. But when they're on the stage and they're doing it, it's not like there's any learning curve. They never like go to like singing camp or anything like that and exactly. get better. And, it's just they're, and they're believable different. enough. They're believable enough
0: that if, if right. the movie was like, yeah, these guys are the. And and I think Will Ferrell's at his best when he's playing sort of a high status idiot blowhard which you know he
1: kind of gets to do but kind of doesn't in this movie to make exactly, the to make the like, comparison back to um back to uh Zoolander with Ben Stiller he's obviously not attractive enough to be a supermodel that's yes,
0: the but, joke <laughs> but he's also He's also on top.
1: Yeah, the movie doesn't know that. Like, we know that. That's why it's funny. But the subversion is the movie acts like he is a world-renowned supermodel, and of course he is. Like, that's the joke. And if they had done that with these two, where, where... why wouldn't why couldn't they just be like respected in Iceland and like go exactly. over there? and you could still have the same sort of machinations at the plot and like trying to break up the totally. band and all these things. But to make it this underdog sports story, yeah, I don't think that I think it was just too many works. layers
0: and 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 I think honestly, what it comes down to is this feels this feels like kind of the typical Netflix movie thing cool. where I feel like, this movie got produced a draft too early or, or two drafts too early. Or there like, wasn't a script
1: like... most of the time. That's what I think the problem is, is there just isn't, Not... there isn't anything here on the page. The Eurovision is funny in and of itself, but it's that type yes. of funny that it's already self parody. You don't have to do much with it. Exactly. And then,
0: so just trust that to be
1: enough. Trust that to be enough. And show us these
0: perform because like visually this movie's great. Mm. Uh, the the music is really fun. That the big I think the turning point for this movie, like you said, it's about halfway through when they meet up with all the Eurovision like winners and they have this incredible song. Yeah, but uh, a br- at this first party. of all, this
1: should have been a musical through and through, and it kind of is, yes. but there's only one um diegetic song in the film and it's that one where they just mm-hmm. break out into song this sh- absolutely should have been a musical
0: um so uh, and yes i agree with you 100% by the way because that is where the the movie kicks into high gear and you could have supplanted all of this Bullshit at the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, set up with a, one song that explains everything, that explains their relationship, that explains like, and that's what's frustrating about this movie is I think there's something here. It's so close it's just, to being funny. Exactly, it's just missed potential because, uh, uh, uh yeah, yeah, it's just so kind of to
1: frustrating. Me, and I, I think it had a tighter screenplay where you get some real comedy exactly. writers in here then when we do end up when there are like dialogue set pieces and stuff and people are just we're relying just on on the comedians being funny they would actually have funny things to say and the, that's a problem is they just let Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams just like well you know just say things in a funny accent and that's a joke and yeah, not all the yeah, time exa- is it and,
0: no in fact in fact in this case the more the more you're treating the setting as the the straight person, the voice of reason. Yeah. The more we're that we're just accepting this world as the way it is, the funnier that will be. Yeah. But if it's if it's poking fun at that too much, I don't know. It
1: just it it this misses movie, the chemistry here a little bit. And I agree with you. I've, not only do I think Will Ferrell is like, for whatever reason, just not having that much fun in this movie. And he's given so much to chew on, but doesn't. Um, And... uh, I think he's miscast. uh, I think he's he's too old for this role. I don't want to see him hook up with Rachel McAdams. It's weird. Even though Rachel Mm -hmm. McAdams is not super young, it just looks weird on screen.
0: Yeah, it still looks like there's a good... 20-year age yeah. gap, if not and more.
1: This uh, this might be a bad example, because he might actually be older than Will Ferrell, but imagine this movie with Rob Lowe in the lead.
0: Uh, I actually think that Dan Stevens should have just been the lead.
1: I just love his part so much, I don't want to take it from him, because I think he's having no, more fun true. where he is. But Yeah, that's true. But I think he could like have... Somebody like that, you know? It. Somebody who is, who is kind of, like, traditionally attractive, but also... Can be made fun of. Can make you know. Can like take the piss out of John himself. John Hamm, my friend. John Hamm is that guy. Maybe yeah. <laughs> uh, he wants to be that guy. Even like even like a Paul Rudd or something. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. To- I exactly. I think. I think yeah, and you know it bums and me. And he's out a good singer. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is he? Yeah.
1: yeah. You've never seen um, him do I, those song parodies on Jimmy Fallon. He he could like kill it.
0: Oh, all right. um... Uh, or if people watched Hamilton, uh, fucking get Jonathan Groff up there. He fucking kills it in Hamilton. I think he could he could kill it in a role like this. Yeah. Um. Y- exactly. Yeah. I just think again, it. I think it's sort of the problem with the Netflix model of like content, content, content. Um. Because this, I think, just needed to be developed a little bit more. Well, it was a top. Could have been. It was a
1: top to it was a top-down kind of project right so they it started with will ferrell who co-wrote this apparently or maybe they're just calling it co-written because it was mostly improvised but um you know it was him and the director and they're like okay well this is a will ferrell joint we're gonna make a will ferrell movie and then it goes from there then they just kind of plug in all the other stuff and the unfortunate thing was all the other stuff was more interesting than will ferrell at the end
0: yeah and i guess uh I, I think, it, you know, Will Ferrell probably felt very passionate about this because his his uh, wife is European. Uh, I, I, <laughs> she might be Icelandic. Uh, uh, anyway, so, you know, I feel like he did probably have a personal connection to all of this. Yeah. And I think maybe he was just a little too close to it. Mm-hmm. But, like,
1: imagine... Uh, he, not that he, Pierce he's not Brosnan uniformly did, awful in the movie. He has his moments, but... It's just, it's considerably lower energy. He just feels out of place.
0: Yeah. And he feels wrong. Like, imagine if he had been, not that Pierce Brosnan was bad or anything as the dad, but imagine him as the dad. Mm -hmm. Or imagine him as Dan Stevens' part. You know, like, switch those roles. And I think he would have had more fun. Like, I think he still could have been a part of this without having to be the star. Because he just doesn't, Work with everything that's going on, and
1: I actually don't think Rachel McAdams is awful here. I think she's game, and I I haven't yeah. watched her have this much fun in a movie. Like you can tell, she's usually you know not since like Mean Girls So she played in a like a comedy really.
0: Um, well, she's been in a few. She was in uh, Game Night, and um, yeah, I guess uh, she's been and and that was. Decent. But she's usually like, I
1: think she usually plays a certain kind of like like late thirties. Serious lady Kind of thing And in this She gets to be this like Naive bright eyed Sort of goofy thing And I actually wasn't sure If she could do that And I think she actually Does it pretty well It's just that the writing Itself isn't great
0: Plus I guess she did um, She did some of the singing Like uh, she sings at least One full song And then they They kind of like They kind of like Overdub her vocals With some like You know help and, And like
1: some effects with and another, stuff, yeah.
0: They, like, pair her vocals with another singer's vocals, which is kind of cool. So it still sounds naturally like her, but hitting probably ranges she can't normally hit. So, yeah. like, I actually think she really works as the, the pop star figure as well. Uh, I I agree. I, I really think and maybe it wouldn't have stood out so much if they hadn't tried to make this like romantic thing between Will Farrell and Rachel McAdams like maybe you know maybe he is an older guy and she's sort of his protege or whatever like yeah. that could have worked more i just think again well, that just, just felt
1: studio noty to me like i felt like it made more sense yeah. that they were just childhood friends who grew up they were in a band there doesn't always have to be like sexual tension in a fucking movie, like no, like not every For the single love of god, not every single male and female who are on screen together have to end up together.
0: Yeah, like not some people are just man friends. and every woman want to fuck. <laughs> yeah, get over it, Hollywood. I, I mean, I get why why so many stories are that because it everybody wants to be loved yeah. and and it's it's. Paint by numbers, like yeah. it's really easy to fill that stuff in and sort of substitute character development with that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, it, but this is a movie where boring. it absolutely didn't have
1: to be there. I would wish no. because the one of the running gags in the movie, which is eh, it's okay. Um, is that they may or may not be brother and sister because Pierce Brosnan impregnated so many people in their town. Um mm-hmm. I wish they had been brother and sister, it just would have been a better movie. I agree, yeah,
0: yeah, that take on it uh, their brother and sister he's super into Eurovision, he's like taught her how to sing, like that's a better draft, yeah. and, and that's what's frustrating is I saw all of these flaws as I was watching it, and so that pulled me out of the fun of this world and, mm-hmm. and I wanted to enjoy this movie because I think and and I here's the thing, I am kind of ragging on it, but Ultimately, I think there is a lot to enjoy here. yeah, and that's the is- thing.
1: It's, I think we're stuck in this kind of loop about talking about the criticisms we have with it is because it's so almost there. Exactly. I love this kind of high camp stuff. I love, it, I love, totally. uh, you know, the Josie and the Pussycats movie. I love the Zoolander. I love, you know, even something like Blades of Glory, which is sort of definitely the closest analog in the Will Ferrell universe. Um, I love all that stuff. And I think that they could, this deserves that sort of treatment. It's just not there on a writing level.
0: Exactly. And and I think, yeah, they just sort of taken a couple couple more passes at that script at that story Mm. and and, you know if
1: but it's watchable like if you do end up especially you're not going to a theater you're not putting down a ton of money for it if you do end up watching this i would say most people are gonna more or less like it it's just definitely not gonna like be up there with anything like anchorman
0: no but i mean you know we can't hold every movie to the standard of anchorman sure that's uh, you know, but but we can hold it to uh, the standard of you know some other Will Ferrell movies that, mm-hmm. that haven't reached those heights. But I, you know, I just yeah, What's, I I think I'm more critical on it because it's almost there because I was frustrated by it because, but at the end of the day, it's it's something fun to put on that's going to distract you. From the horror of the world, and I loved the music. I loved the performances. Like there's, so, it's so big and grand, and and mm-hmm. and the the movie doesn't skip on production value. That's for
1: sure. Yeah, that's true. I yeah, I'm I. The second half almost saves it for me, but not quite. So I'm feeling kind of a C to a C minus on it.
0: I. Agree with you. I think the second half. By the time we get to that sort of musical number in the middle, I, I was pretty much warmed up to the movie. It just took me an hour to get there. Um, I was I was kind of going back and forth between C plus and B minus. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't know where that lands me at. I think it might depend on the day, but I think I'm gonna say C plus.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's not too far off all right well let's go ahead and move on now to gerald's game and i'll let you describe that this is also streaming on netflix this came out in 2017
0: um what's gerald's game so gerald's game so it's based on a stephen king story and it's about a couple um that it's kind of hit a rocky patch in their marriage um so they uh go set up a weekend getaway um And, uh, they set it up in, you know, this like romantic cabin-ish sort of like vacation home. It's really isolated, really private. Um, and, uh, Gerald, his plan is to get kinky and to, to sort of get his fuck on with his wife played by Carla Giugino named Jesse. And he, he wants to try, they want to try to reignite their relationship. They're, you know, he's an older guy. They're an older couple. They've been married for, for a few years now. Um, and that sort of spark has died out. And so he takes a, a, a pair of uh, sturdy, like, police-grade handcuffs and uh, handcuffs her to both arms to the bedpost. He seems to have maybe a rape fantasy that he wants to explore with her. She's uncomfortable by all of this, uh, you know, in, in are in the midst of discussing it and he has a heart attack and dies, right. uh, leaving her handcuffed to a bedpost for who knows how long, uh, with no real sign of, of help in the immediate future, uh, because this was planned as, as a romantic weekend getaway, uh, you know, where they were just going to be by themselves right. for, for the whole weekend. Right. <laughs> Basically, it, it's sort of her living inside of her imagination, trying to figure out a way out of this scenario.
1: Mm-hmm. It's one of those great sort of Kingian premises. Um,
0: yeah, and uh, it's, it feels very King.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's like direct... Um, Comparisons you can make to something like the single location, the lack of mobility of the character. You can, you can, that's very similar to misery. And there's also mm-hmm. like some cujo happening in this film, among other things. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, uh, the big X factor in all of this is that, uh, Gerald, um, played by Bruce mm-hmm. Greenwood, uh, leaves the door open before all of this occurs. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So there's, there's a survival I, I don't film. know
0: if I, I don't know. Should we? I, okay. We might go into spoiler territory here because I think there is an aspect of this film that to re- really review it we do have to discuss. Right. Um. So if if you want to see this movie, I think again it's we say this all the time, but I think it's one of those movies that is better sort of the less you know about it. Yeah, because it's sort um, of a ride. So yeah. So I think if you if you want to go into this. I think you should go into this pretty cold. So if you haven't seen it, if you're interested in seeing it, you should stop, go watch it, and then come back and, and listen to this after. Right. Um, because, uh, th- so she has these sort of, yeah, so I'm going into kind of more story details now. She has these sort of uh, imaginary conversations with herself and with her uh, very recently deceased husband, Gerald, mm-hmm.
1: uh,
0: talking to her own psyche. And uh, this, the dog comes in, starts to uh, chew on the body.
1: Yeah, a, uh, a neighborhood starving dog.
0: Mm-hmm. And then there's also another visitor, uh, who comes in the night, known as the Moonlight Man, who may or may not who exist. May also, yeah, it may also be a part of her imaginary psyche. Yeah, uh, that she is dealing with. Yeah. Uh, so Cassidy, what did you think of Gerald's game?
1: Well, this was wild. Um, this was, (laughs) I mean, this really threw me for a loop. I didn't, I knew the basic premise that, you know, she was stuck there on the bed, but Mm -hmm. I didn't know, I didn't even really know what kind of movie it was going for. I I thought it was going to be sort of like a sexy, sort of like thriller kind of thing where Because it's called Gerald's Game. So I assumed like this was all like some weird sadistic fantasy of her husband and that was going to play out longer than it does. Um, And then he like drops dead in the first reel of the movie. Um, Yeah. And then I was like, oh, okay. So this is a totally different kind of thing. And the movie just, not only is this, you know, one of the more um, minimal and like it's like single location sort of bottle episode, um, King stories that that's been adapted, but this is also one of the like darker. Um, yeah. And at times places at times, straight up evil. Like sometimes I was like, this is an evil movie, but (laughs) yeah. Um, and it's also like, you know, uh, it's also straight horror. Like I,
0: I, Kind of agree what you with there's a you psycho like,
1: thriller element to it, sure, but but yeah, I would say that it, it definitely goes for it.
0: It has some elements to it that are like so fucked up, yeah. Um,
1: yeah, because we also but we we stay in the room for the most part, and it's you know, it is a one set kind of thing, but there's also some flashbacks of her past and stuff like that. We kind of figure out mm-hmm. why she has a harder time with the kink um, at the beginning of the movie. And that all plays out interesting. And there's, there's even sort of a feminist subtext to a lot of this, um, which seems kind uh, of weird gonna, given that. I wouldn't say. Given that the film is this, like almost a, an artfully made roughy. um Yeah. But I, I think it's sort of the same as
0: like, uh, I think this is a completely feminist movie. And, mm-hmm. and I think uh, uh, it's sort of like, you know, how a good war movie is anti war. Right. I think it's sort of it, it's sort of like that. Uh, you know, like it, it deals with some real some real shit, uh, as far as uh psychological trauma goes yeah. and the damage that trauma can have and uh especially sexual trauma like
1: Yeah, the movie's working on a lot of different levels. And this is why I love Mike Flanagan as a filmmaker. Um, of course, you know, all this is coming from the mind of Stephen King, too. So credit where credit's due there. Um, it's working on a lot of those levels, but I think Flanagan's yeah. so good at balance. He knows how to, to take a like kind of B movie horror premise and elevate it and then also pay it off and never let, never let you, because I was like genuinely stressed out. By just the situational aspect of it, right? Like, yeah, you know, how would I thinking, on how would I get, get out of there? What are the st- steps I would take? Blah blah blah. Like the sort of the and, and getting the into sort of the processes of her mind of how she figures things the out. The fucking
0: way she figures out like her her situation, and she figures out the clues. I was like, there were moments that I was like, oh, that's. F- Fucking genius the way mm-hmm. this information was sort of dulled out.
1: Right. It was like, yeah. oh shit. Little things that they pepper in the beginning of the movie that end up playing a big part later on. Um, just yeah. very, very, very good filmmaking and also incredible performances because this all really kind of hinges on um, the two main actors, Carla G- uh, Gugino and Bruce Greenwood, both of who are great actors in and of themselves, but. Don't and always get this both, much to do.
0: Yeah, well, they are both also in uh, fucking Mike Flanagan's stable of actors.
1: Yeah, there's like, a bunch of them in here.
0: He uses uh, Carly Gugino, Gugino, Gugino.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, he uses uh, Bruce Greenwood a lot. He uses. Uh, uh, he's used Carol Strukian, man, the tall man, Moonlight man. Yeah. Um, he uses Henry Thomas in everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also uses his wife, uh, Kate Siegel and everything like, like he, he has the same people, uh, but you know, I think there's something nice of that. He knows he can work with them. He know, and they know that they're going to get stuff to chew on. They're, they're yeah. going to get some. Um, uh, yeah. So I've kind of been going through a Mike Flanagan phase, which is, why I, I recommended this. I recently watched The Haunting of Hill House, which has basically all of these actors in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I rewatched Dr. Sleep. Um, and yeah. I think he just gets Stephen King in particular. Yeah. I think that that he is, uh, you know, Stephen King is best when he is writing. Yeah, he has some high premise stuff, but he's really good at character. Yeah, He's not, great at plot uh, uh because i don't think he really thinks about it i think he thinks of premise and character first and just sort of lets those things play out that's why I, a lot of people tend to be disappointed in king endings yeah because he's not thinking of the ending at the beginning
1: uh um, not all the time and, and I, although i think this one kind of like misery is is one of his more efficient uh economic stories yeah, and I think it has a pretty. T- we don't get, in, we don't get into like weird like turtle gods and things like that.
0: Oh man, I also love it when King goes there, and <laughs> and that's the other thing uh, I want to mention about Mike Flanagan. This is a weird little sidebar, but he has had Dark Tower references in both this and Doctor Sleep, which I didn't pick up the first time I saw Doctor Sleep, um, but this time it stood out like a sore fucking thumb in this. Gerald says "All all things serve the beam which is a huge like nod to dark tower mm-hmm. and in uh in dr sleep oh I can't remember the 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 name of the character um the the black groundskeeper um when he's talking to
1: Dick Holleran?
0: Danny uh he he says uh something about Ka he mentions Ka, which is another huge dark Tower reference so i i think he gets the way stephen king works and i like that he also is adding these subtle nods to other king movies um and other king stories uh but all but i think you know this movie lives or dies on the characters right because it's it's so isolated to to jesse and uh you know we really get to know She's a very well-developed, well-rounded character. Um, she has trauma in her past, but she's not defined by it. Mm-hmm. And this movie is is about that. Is about her, uh, you know, overcoming that, which is really cool. Um, Gerald, I think, even though he dies so quickly, uh, we do get to see a lot of aspects of his character through. The filter of Jesse. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, I really dug this movie.
1: Yeah, I did too. I think this is brilliant, great filmmaking. And if, you know, going back to our discussion of Netflix releases, obviously Eurovision has a much bigger budget than this. um, And it was essentially made on the scale of like a normal Will Ferrell comedy. But a lot of times these Netflix films, especially the, the genre stuff, tends to be sort of mid to lower budget. And I think this is such a good example of using your budget wisely and using it accordingly to the story, like not biting off more than you can chew and hiding the seams wherever you can. And I wasn't even thinking about the scale of the film by the time I was, you know, well into the middle of it. Because the stakes are there,
0: yeah. the, sto- the story is so good. We don't need it to be this this big epic thing. Right. Because to the to the character to Jesse, it is life or death. It is it is the culmination of her life. It is epic, you know in in every sense of of her personal uh, character arc. So, you know, we don't need an overblown uh, overblown budget to tell. A story like this yeah. like it 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 it, and it doesn't feel cheap it feels uh appropriate yeah yeah i i recently watched the pet cemetery remake um did you see that you saw that right uh, yeah i did that? yeah and to me that is like a, a every example of what not to do right uh compared to this Th- this does everything right that that movie gets wrong like it's all about the character it's all about making those mundane moments epic. Uh, and, you know, whereas Pet Cemetery is just all about the premise. It's all about the big horror you know, payoffs
1: just, and that kind of stuff. Gerald's game has big horror premises um, and big yeah. horror payoffs, but they matter so much more when you care about the character and the stakes are really there from the beginning. And it's, I mean, this is, like I said, this is a gruesome, difficult movie yeah. a lot of the time. Um, yeah.
0: And it's kind of funny. And when it goes there, it fucking goes there.
1: Yeah. Di- I recently listened to an episode of the King cast where they had Mike Flanagan on to talk about, uh, I forget which, which project he was there to talk about, but he wasn't talking about Gerald's game, but, but the host brought it up. Uh, and a funny story he told was that he, when he was originally developing this, he had a different actress uh, to play to play the lead and the production company or somebody, somebody somewhere sent that actress the wrong screenplay. So for months they were prepping with two different screenplays in mind between the director and actor. And they'd been having all these conference (laughs) calls and conversations about it. And she kept talking about how it was great that he had made it a comedy Because I guess this other version of Gerald's game that was adapted was uh, was like somebody had turned it into a comedy or tried to make it funny or something like that, and he just thought she was weird the whole time until he realized. Oh my! Until he realized what happened, and then uh, he sent her the the screenplay that he wrote, and she immediately jumped off the project. But.
0: whoa <laughs> also as an a- i don't know as an actor i wouldn't i would be like fuck yeah like i get some real stuff to work with and yeah i mean here's the thing i think this movie i I don't know who that actress was and i don't want to say anything they don't say her. on the uh um, they
1: don't say on the uh the podcast either he he withheld that information but, but...
0: no i just want to say like uh carla fuck, Gugino. I can't say her name carla Gu- Gugino. Gugino. Uh, is so good in this. And yeah. I think she's just a terrific, terrific actor. And and I love I I love that Mike Flanagan has this staple of actors, cause like uh, you know, the fucking kid from E. T. gets to do some fucked up shit uh in this Haunting of Hill House, uh even Doctor Sleep. I, I realized uh we talked about who played Jack Torrance that it's it's uh It's that guy. It's the kid from E.T. The only thing I will say about Mike Flanagan that I've noticed, uh, it's not as apparent in in this it works, um, but he has a tendency to overwrite some character dialogue occasionally. Like he, He has a tendency to have these sprawling sort of overly
1: poetic monologues. Um, yeah, well, I mean, this I, movie, th- I think, kind of lends to that because so much of it is in her monologue. Um, yes,
0: I, I think to this it works to to the movie's advantage. There's only one actually... place in
1: the film that I I don't need it as much. There's an epilogue, and I, I this is probably all in the book, and I'm sure it was adapted faithfully, but there's a big epilogue at the end once she escapes and, you know, whatever, um, where she's going yeah. over everything, and it, it kind of ties everything up in a nice little neat little bow a little bit more than I would have done. Like, if I were doing yeah. the film version of this, I think it would be better to kind of leave it more on a question mark rather than than giving us so much resolution.
0: Yeah, I well, I don't know. I, I'm sort of of two minds of it. I can see how a more ambiguous ending would be, but I think that that sort of takes away... The thing I like about the the ending as it is is it gives the power back to Jesse fully right. So um, if you're
1: going more for I, the themes, then that ending is totally yes. appropriate. If you're going there for the horror, it does kind of uh tamper down that a little bit
0: so i I think in this case i I was because I initially my gut reaction was feeling this the same thing you're talking about, and i I decided I liked the ending too much because I care about this character and I ultimately, I want to see her have that resolution. So it didn't bother me. In a lot of ways
1: uh, to me, this feels like the, the, the inverse or the negative of misery. Whereas, you know, there's a a male protagonist who was stuck in one place and ended up having to kill a, a woman to get to escape. This kind of feels like the opposite story.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I actually really like that. I think uh mm-hmm. they they could pair well as like a really fucked up double feature. <laughs>
1: yeah. And this is one of my more favorite kind of like Stephen King modes. I like when he gets into the bigger, like more epic storytelling, like the shining and it and that kind of stuff. It's more mythic. But I also really like when he kind of makes these like pot boiler thriller kind of premises too.
0: Totally. Well, I think he's so good at both. Yeah. Um, I mean, he. I, I've i been going through a Stephen King phase for the last few years.
1: You and everyone um, else. Yeah.
0: I know. Uh, it has it not been a bad time to be a Stephen King fan.
1: No. And this is, I think, one of the adaptations that's talked about less, because this came out the same year The It Chapter One came out. And that you know mm-hmm. was such the big story that year for Stephen King in a big way but this is i think up there with some of the best adaptations
0: yeah totally i i agree with you i i was very happy with this mm-hmm. uh, but I'm it's not for the faint definitely... of heart
1: i'll say that if you watch this especially it kind of kind of sneaks up on you how how fucked up it gets
0: um yeah and and also like serious, uh, and we probably should, uh, talk, mention this at the beginning, but serious trigger warning for, for people who ha- are victims of sexual assault. Like, yeah, uh, th- this could be extremely traumatic, uh, of a movie yeah. to go into
1: for sure. All right. Well, that's going to be the episode. And, uh, for the next time we do one of these, the, uh, streaming homework that I had planned is a, A weird film, I've only kind of heard about a little bit, I've seen some stuff, interested in seeing it, cult film from 1982 called Liquid Sky, I think Eurovision kind of made me think of this, because I was thinking of the Apple, then I was like, oh, there was also that Liquid Sky movie I never saw, so we'll be talking about that. All right. Uh, Very cool. And if anybody has anything to say about any of the topics we brought up on this episode or past, you can always email us at Jabberin... I... My brain is still wired that way. Uh, MacGuffinPod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on our Instagram and Twitter at MacGuffinPod. You can follow me individually at VC Cassidy, both on Twitter and Instagram. Um if you're on my Twitter homepage you can click on the link to see the reviews I've written for the Idaho State Journal or you can google Idaho State Journal movies and read those um be sure if you're on the McGuffin page mcguff.in to check out the other articles uh and uh reviews by the McGuffin staff and if you know whichever podcatcher you listen to us on uh, Stitcher Radio or or player.fm or PocketCast or iTunes, most prominently, um, please leave us a star rating and a review.
0: Five stars, please. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. You can also follow my art account at Sticky Note Aesthetic. Yes. On Instagram. On Instagram.
1: Uh, and I think that will be it for this week. The elves went too far. Bye.